Welcome to In a Positive Light, a podcast highlighting innovative strategies to end the HIV epidemic in the United States. Your hosts are Richard and Nathan Walsh, a serodiscordant couple who operate the healthcare technology company Continued. Continued is dedicated to developing technology to improve access to care for under-resourced communities. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to In a Positive Light. My name is Nathan Walsh. And I'm Richard Walsh. And we're your hosts. Today, we're going to be talking to Alan Witchie, the executive director of the Damien Center here in Indianapolis, Indiana. I'm really excited to have this conversation with Alan today because we're going to be talking about the one-stop shop model of HIV service organizations. I'm really excited to talk about this. One, because I think the one-stop shop model is really cool when it can be done and done well. But two, the Damien Center is where I started my care several years ago at this point. And they had just started bringing the clinical component inside. In fact, I waited two months after being diagnosed to make sure that I could be one of the first patients of their clinic rather than having to go and have my my medical services done elsewhere and have the uh, non-medical case management done at the Damien Center. I was able to just hold out and have it all done in, in what was the uh, start of that phase of their one-stop shop model. So that was pretty exciting. And so I love hearing about what it's become today under Alan Witchie's direction. And I'm, I'm really excited to uh, have him on as a guest. Yeah. Before we bring him on, I just want to point out that we're going to talk a little bit more about what the one-stop shop model is once we actually have Alan on the call. But I just want to, for a point of reference for the listeners out there who might not know this, HIV care is a spectrum. When you think about how to care for somebody living with HIV, many people would just think of the clinical side. But it's so much more than that. Well, you have to care about the entire person who is living with HIV. You have to care about their housing, their mental wellness, physical wellness, their ability and access to things like jobs and food, and many others. So I want you to keep an open mind. Not a lot of organizations handle or provide all of these services under one roof. They'll usually collaborate with other organizations and refer out. But the Damien Center is doing something a little different. They want to provide all of those services under one roof. So why don't we bring Alan on the call and get this talk on the road? Absolutely. Alan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it very much. So Alan, we're going to we'll go through you know, several different questions today, but why don't we start with the easiest one? Can you just give us a quick rundown? What is a one-stop shop? So the one-stop shop model is about taking medical services and marrying them with other social support services in the community and offering them under one roof so that clients can easily access a variety of services in one place. All right. Well, thanks for that. Now we're just going to get right into the questions. Today, we really wanted to talk about the Damien Center and how it's become that one-stop shop for all services in HIV care which is not something that you see in a lot of areas in our state or even in around the country. So I wanted to just talk um, to you about how you've made all of that happen. But first, can we start by just giving us a little bit of a history behind the Damien Center and the community that you serve? So the Damien Center started in the mid-80s. You know, in, the, in the mid-80s, HIV was here. 
But there were a lot of different programs happening in the community, and there was no one common place to bring them together. And so the Damien Center was formed to bring those various programs together and create one place where people could access services safely and uh, get as many services as possible at the time. And in a, in a way, that was probably the seed of the one-stop shop. It was uh, how do we bring various different programs from the community together? Awesome. Awesome. So for our listeners, we've known you, Alan, for as long as you've been with the Damien Center. When did you step into the role of president for the Damien Center? So I first came to the Damien Center as the CEO in the fall of 2018. And I've been here for about two, two and a half years now. It's been very exciting. And most people don't realize this, but I worked at the Damien Center many years ago in a different role early on in the epidemic. And I left and worked at other organizations. I worked out in Southern California running an HIV organization, eventually came back to Indianapolis. And I'm super excited to come back to the Damien Center. It's a great place to work. Awesome. You kind of touched on it a little bit, but what brought you to this place in your life? I had worked in the HIV field for many years. I really liked it, but I had moved on and was doing other work. I had uh, been working in homelessness and housing, affordable housing, and I was really enjoying that. But when this role came back open at the Damien Center, I was excited to come back here and be part of this effort. I think about why I got involved in the first place, and that was many years ago. And my friends were dying. Many people were uh, sick all over in the gay community. And nobody knew why, what was causing that was a problem. So I felt very vested in helping my community, my friends, the people I knew, and trying to find solutions and find care and support for people uh, who needed it the absolute most. And so when I had the opportunity to come back, and come back into that world, I was really excited. It's a great place to be, and you can't help but feel excited about uh, helping your own community and helping other people who, who need it the most. That's a really emotional connection to the field, and I think that's one that a lot of our listeners are going to share with you about the, the origin of how you got involved in this industry and, and you know what pushes you through. Can you give us maybe a little bit more information on exactly what keeps you going every day now? You know, it's a tough job. I mean, this is a world uh, where uh, there are a lot of issues intersect, everything from addiction, mental health, developmental disability, and a host of other issues. And it is complicated and difficult. And I like that. I like the fact that it's a, it's a difficult, complicated issue, and there's always a challenge to it. Um, but the thing that really keeps me going and working here are the people we serve. Every day, I see people that come in our doors and they need help and they leave with the help that they need. That can be housing, it can be food, it can be medical care. And they're all so uh, excited and they thank us uh, so much. I mean, they're so appreciative for for everything that we are able to provide. Um, And that's exciting to me to know that we're making a difference in people's lives. We're actually improving people's lives in a way that um, otherwise I, I never could have imagined possible in my life. So it's really exciting to be able to be part of that. Wow. Yeah. You can absolutely hear the passion coming out of your voice right now. It's amazing. Yeah. Being able to give people the help that they need when they ask for it has to be a really rewarding experience. So thanks for telling us a little bit more about yourself. I want to talk about this great organization you have here. So can you give us a high level of the programs and services that the Damien Center offers? So the Damien Center 
is working, always has been working to become a one-stop shop with as many services as possible within it. So we look at um, the kind of the core basic needs of our clients, and that can be uh, food services, housing, it can be mental health and, and emotional social social support, but we have grown over the year to years to provide things like medical care, pharmacy care, psychiatric services, sort of a whole host of different things. Well, you hit it right on the head right there. And so I wanted to kind of delve further into that. How is the one-stop shop model different than the service offerings that you can find at a traditional HIV service organization? The one-stop shop model is based in really critical uh, feedback from the people you serve, right? So oftentimes the people that we work to serve the most are struggling with so many different barriers. They could be transportation, it could be uh, insurance, it could be food on the table at night. It can be, how do I get my housing taken care of? And many times those services are located in different different organizations. And so somebody has to go from one organization to another to another. They have to fill out same applications at different organizations, provide the same information. And geographically, it can be really difficult. And people don't realize how hard it is sometimes just to get through getting get to somebody to show up and get services and show up and ask for care and ask for things. And if they have to keep asking in various different places, that can be intimidating. And what we know is that many people don't follow through when that's the case. The more places people go, the least likely they are to get the service. Instead, they'll will boil it down to what is the critical service I need. And oftentimes that is food, that is housing assistance. It is how do I keep stable in my life? And so those other really critical services, things like medical care or mental health care might go on the wayside only because they have to go to so many places. So the one-stop shop is all about uniting those services under one roof. And in most cases, it is about the social support services like case management and medical care being unified into one site, right? So that's, the, that's really core. It's the medical side and the, the social services support side coming together under one roof. And it's very complicated because most organizations have evolved as a medical site or as a social service site, and they don't tend to have the same services across the board on them. It is really difficult to do everything well. As business owners, Nathan and I know, know that for a fact. But when you do, everyone can benefit from that convenience. Yeah, speaking of convenience, in the long run, does the one-stop shop model make your clients more reliant on you or does it empower them to become more self-sustaining? A lot of people wonder, is it causing dependence by offering everything under one roof or is it creating self-sufficiency for people? And I can tell you absolutely definitively, it is about creating self-sufficiency. It's about reducing barriers. So the more barriers you have to services, the least likely you are to continue to get those services. So the one-stop shop reduces those barriers by bringing them together and creating options. And in some cases, uh, one of, for instance, in some services, we are actually able to use funding from the one-stop shop model like medical care or pharmacy care to fund other services here. And that includes things like, like paying for co-pays or paying for medications that other people wouldn't be able to support. So the one-stop shop allows us not only to expand all services, but also to reduce costs for some traditional medical um, services that people would have to pay if they went to a medical 
medical site that's not a one-stop shop. I could not agree more that breaking down barriers is the key for caring for communities. Yeah, so Alan, you touched on a, a really good point about the funding. How do you guys fund this continuously while also making sure that your services remain available to your clients? Yeah, so it's a great question. And to start the one-stop shop model in particular, if you're going to start like a, a medical uh, model or a pharmacy, it's an incredible investment into it. And it's incredibly complicated because there's certifications. You have to uh, have oversight from uh, medical professionals, and that costs money. There's an incredibly complex process that takes over a year oftentimes to really shift to. And so you have to be able to be in a place in your organization where you can invest into that, knowing that it will return on that investment, right? Because once you get the model going, you do have money that you earn from things like third-party reimbursements from medical care and pharmacy income that you can use to supplement the other services that you're providing. And those are required. You know, the interesting thing, because the income that we, we get, it's required of us to reinvest that back into services. So it's not like we can go off and do something else. Uh, we Literally, because of the way that we get those funds, you have to put it back in, which is exciting. You know, it's interesting, though, too. One-stop shop can, can be thought of in different ways. For instance, we are opening our first satellite site on the Far East Side in Cafe Community Center. It's the Community Center Far East Side, and they provide all kinds of services in there. And we just literally opened it this week in that uh, location, and it's going to build up in different services. So right now, we're providing things like uh, HIV testing, and we'll be providing housing and outreach and education. Eventually, we'll be offering medical care on site there. And it will be a different kind of one-stop shop, right? Because in that building, there's a head start, there's a re-entry services, there's a child care, La Plaza that serves the Latinx population is there. And so we'll be able to build a service model from all those various different collaborations that's very different. And so patients and clients who access care there will get a different kind of a one-stop shop. And it might be more tailored to families, for instance. And so that's an exciting thing to think about. But in order to do that, it was, uh, again, it does require some kind of investment. And really to start our medical model, the reason, the whole reason why we were able to start it here was because we received a very large grant an enormous capital grant to create the clinic in the first place. And if we hadn't received that, we never could have gotten it off the ground effectively. All right. Well, you're doing so many things right now. Yeah. It's interesting that the one-stop shop model isn't a one-size-fits-all. Yeah. So I think the, the question is, is it worth the money and chasing those dollars? What kind of viral load and retention trends have you guys seen come out of this, this model? Damien Center has a medical model, but it also has patients and clients to access our care that are not in medical care. So people choose, uh, do I want to come to the Damien Center for all services, or do I want to come for certain services and go to other places for certain services? And in most often, the service that people go somewhere else for is medical care or 
case management, and then they still come here for other services. What we can do then is look at those patients, right? We can look at a patient that comes here for medical care and other services, and we can look at a patient that comes here for, say, case management, but gets their medical care somewhere else. And we're able to compare the viral suppression loads between those two sets of clients. And we have enough that it's statistically significant. And what we know is that people that come here for medical care are far more likely to reach viral suppression. So we'll have a 91% of those patients that reach viral suppression. But when you look at the patients that come here for case management and maybe some of those other supportive services, but get their medical care somewhere else, the number, the percentage of those, those clients who reach viral suppression is significantly less. It's more in about 75%. So there's a huge difference between those. And so we know because of that, the medical model works and it works well. The other thing to think about is not a medical model is not for every site. So we are different than some other nonprofits and HIV sites. And it's it's really important to remember, it's complicated and it's difficult and you can mess up somebody's medical care and that, that can be messing up their life. And so you don't want to have everybody start trying to offer medical care. You want to make sure that it's done the right way and the most effective way. And so advocating for everyone to go to the one-stop shop model is actually not the ideal. It's the ideal to, is to find the groups that can really do it and do it well. All right. So switching gears just a little bit, what institutional or social challenges have you faced while developing this model? You know, I think there's a lot of uh, challenges that can come up when you're shifting to the one-stop shop model because you do have to stay focused on the current services you're providing and making sure that those are done well. And at the same time, you're looking at how do we start medical care? How do we start a pharmacy? How do we start dental care? These things that, that add into that one-stop shop model. And those are incredibly difficult entities to start. It can easily take a year from beginning to end uh, when you're opening a medical practice. And that means that during that time, you have to have somebody who can dedicate time and effort to making sure that goes through appropriately. And at the same time, make sure that you don't compromise all the things you're currently doing. And that's so that's complicated because it's about capacity. So even if you have the funding, you still have to have the capacity within your organization to be able to keep one foot in the future, looking at how you're going to develop these programs and these services, and keep one foot in the present, making sure you're still doing what you need to do accurately and well and efficiently. We definitely understand the strain on business development. Scaling is always a challenge, and it's for a variety of reasons, but oftentimes just resources, the money, the people, the knowledge, the accessibility. 100%, yeah. How have the alliances and partnerships evolved over time? Yeah, you know, I think our partnerships and alliances have definitely evolved over time. I think there were times in the past where it was really complicated because we would work with maybe a, an organization in the community that was really struggling and needed us to come in and provide the support or the service that they couldn't provide. And now more often, uh, there's more resources for people in the community. So more often now we're trying to figure out how can we work together to better serve uh, clients. And that's a different place to come at, right? 
when we're all trying to get together and say, how do we provide more comprehensive services and better services to clients together, as opposed to how do we come in and provide a service or an effort for you that you're not able to, to have? And, and it puts you in more of a dependent mode. And so that's exciting. And now we have partnerships all over. I mean, we have partnerships with food banks across the city. We have partnerships with other medical sites, other care sites. In some cases, we have partnerships with um, you know, really unexpected uh, groups that come along. Like there could be people who are doing community grassroots level in integration into the in services, and they need us to help provide the capacity for them to continue to do that work or a clientele to provide to serve. So for instance, um, we're working on a food pantry. There's no questions asked food pantry. There's community refrigerators. There's community meal programs happening all over that we can we can send clients to, or they can come on site and help provide those services in ways that we haven't done before. So most recently, we're working now to set up one of those community pantries that will uh, be available on our property that isn't related necessarily specifically to HIV and allows anyone in the community to come in. Before COVID, we were having these things called community days in uh, in, in um, our large conference room, and we invited all these businesses to come in and we invited just anybody in the community to come in our doors to get services or get um, um, products that they were distributing. And that built kind of a different kind of partnership with the community that we were living in than before where we were only serving our clients. We were trying to build more bridges into the community itself. And those were uh, exciting partnerships that some of which have been really curtailed by COVID and the current circumstances. But we are really excited to start a lot of those up again. Well, that opens it right up. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. So you just mentioned the big C word, and so we have to talk about it. We were hit by a pretty large pandemic about a year ago, and, if more than anyone, people living with HIV were affected by this. So how has COVID affected your programming, and how have you evolved? COVID really took us all by surprise. I mean, there were a lot of things that when COVID hit, we were really operating like usual. And we really didn't think there would be dramatic changes in those first weeks. And then we found out very quickly that there would be dramatic changes, things that we had always thought about or imagined, but never been able to do. Things like telehealth to us was, it was on our list of things, Let's that would be really nice to do. And it became really quickly from something really nice to do to something we absolutely had to figure out how to implement in two weeks. And that was uh, difficult because we didn't have the technology, we didn't have the resources, we didn't know uh, what we were doing. And, and it really led to a moment of innovation for us to be able to say, hey, in the midst of this chaos, how do we start serving our patients better and differently? And so we really did kind of approach it from a three-point three perspective. So we said things like, okay, what services could evolve? Who can we send home to work from home? What can we do as, as telehealth and through phones, getting the right technology in place and getting all of that done. And then what services did we have to maintain? What were core services that had to be done in person? People can't get their labs at home. People, there were certain medical visits you had to do. We we didn't have a way to deliver food pantry at the time. So people had to still come and get their food here. We were serving 500 families a month and we just didn't have the capacity or the ability to deliver all those orders home. So we were still bringing people in for that. And then we said the third thing we really looked at is who's out in the streets 
in uh, living homeless, experiencing a lot of health issues, and might be at highest risk. And so we brought those people into hotels, and we looked at individual hotel rooms to let people quarantine and uh, stay safe. And so that was really our strategy to say, telehealth as much as possible, maintain core services, bring the most fragile people into safety. And then at the same time, we still tried to keep our eyes on the future. Where do we need to go? How do we keep going forward in significant ways? And that's how we did it. Now, after uh, a year of this, we've we've evolved. And so we figured out other critical ways that we, we could engage. So even as we started doing telehealth, we found a big barrier, for instance, was many of our clients didn't have smartphones, they didn't have computers, they didn't have data that they could access. And so we were able to get tablets and distribute those to people who could then communicate with a provider. So we continue to evolve, we continue to change. So you're certainly not alone. Your story, I think, is a template for a lot of our listeners of how the last year has gone for them. Everybody has felt that strain in trying to reorganize and and restructure their organization. Yeah. So the digital aspect is something that you have obviously had to look into as a one-stop shop. It's just another kit in your tool belt. So uh, what are some of the most successful digital programs that you've had with COVID? You know, the digital piece has become critical during COVID because we've had so many patients and clients who did not want to leave their homes because they were very scared and they were very nervous, and rightfully so, because it was a dangerous time. Or uh, people who really uh, just didn't feel safe in any significant way uh, other than going to very um, minor places in the community to get food, to get groceries, and, and those kinds of things. And so we had this group that were sitting at home and they, they needed to get medical care, they needed to get emotional support, and they needed to find ways to access services in new ways. And so what we were able to do, we were able to get grants to, to purchase laptops for our staff to be able to talk to, to people from home. We were able to get the, the software to be able to do those telehealth encounters. And then we were able to get tablets for our clients that had digital attached to them to allow the clients then to communicate to their provider. And that was really key because many of those clients and patients just didn't have, could not afford the technology to be able to talk to their provider and their clients. And so telehealth would have been useless to that group of people without the tablets. So, Alan, telehealth was something that everyone really had to rapidly get into, even though a lot of people are very much used to meeting in person, especially when it's something as intimate as your care. And so that whole meeting online, it's very different than meeting in person. How do you really connect with your clients and keep them engaged online? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because for some people, engaging online was very natural and they might have a lot of social connectedness already. So uh, for some people, they could just step into that and find it very natural. But for a huge number of people, that was not the case. They they were not normally um, talking to people on video chat. They were not communicating uh, very strongly via email. They weren't doing uh, as many phone calls with people and talking about their care and their stress. So, so that was a new thing for people. And as we did it, I think it was really critical that we had relationships with a lot of these people as we went into that, that field because we had to maintain that. But it is different. You know, it can be difficult when you're um, video chatting to build the same relationship. And so it takes a very special um, person. So we we would train staff 
so that they would feel more comfortable talking to people. And some staff could step up right away and they were really good at it. And others were less comfortable. And so we could uh, take that, that group of staff and keep them maybe seeing people in person where we could align staff that were really comfortable uh, online to do it. And then we just had to uh, work with the, the clients. And sometimes that meant bringing them in to go through a tutorial. And sometimes that meant going over the tutorial on the phone. And sometimes it meant different kinds of things to make sure that they could engage. Yeah, it was definitely an adjustment for everyone. It can be easy for us to overlook how difficult it was not only for for you, but really for your patients, who, especially those who've been engaged in care for years, to just suddenly transition to the way that they access care and how they navigate services. It's a bit of a wild ride for everyone. So what, what do your clients think about all the changes that COVID brought about? Yeah, you know, I think our clients are doing as well as they could. I think, you know, there's certainly a lot of stress and pressure and we see much greater need for mental health services than ever. And we've been really fortunate to be able to adapt mental health really well to this telehealth component. But at the end of the day, it's a crazy world with all of this going on. And people are stressed and crazy, but many, many people are doing well with this. People are excited to uh, learn that we're still here. We're still providing services. And if they don't feel safe coming into the building, we can still provide the services remotely. And now we're even, uh, we do more deliveries. We, as time has gone on, we've figured out how to not just do telehealth, that's been critical, but we've been able to deliver food pantry, to go get signatures from people and deliver applications places. So we've really built up an engagement strategy far more than what we had before for people who are living at home. So it sounds like this digital model has a a long-term home in your one-stop shop. And I think that's pretty exciting for the Damien Center. And I think that's really exciting for your clients. Yeah. Well, Alan, here's our final question. And again, thank you so much for jumping on this call with us. So the Damien Center has basically mastered the one-stop shop model, but there are public health experts out there that would like to really adopt this. So do you have any uh, advice for the community health leaders about how to take the first steps into launching that one-stop shop model? Yeah, I think if if you're really interested in sort of adopting or implementing the one-stop shop model, the key is... There are people that know how to do it, that have been through it. It's good to learn the best practices. Reach out to people and talk to them. Ask them, what did they do? Where did things go wrong? What did they do right? And getting all that feedback to help you through the process. It's really important not to do it on your own uh, purely because there's so many ways that it can go wrong and so many complications that can happen. And there are people out there willing to help. I mean, I always say I'm willing to help. I love it when somebody calls us and says, how did you do that? What did you, what did you learn from this? What were your big learnings and mistakes? And what would you tell us not to do as that's, you know, what not to do is just as important as what to do. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Alan. Yeah, thank you. This was really great. We appreciate it. And I think our listeners are going to appreciate it as well. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it very much. Awesome. Well, I mean, it's always great to have a conversation with Alan. I think he's got some fantastic ideas. He's very in tune with the community. He served, as he talked about, both in HIV and in several other social service areas over the years. So he brings a lot of experience to the table, and I think he's a great fit for the Damien Center, especially in this central Indiana community and and bringing together a lot of different players who have different ideas about how to end the HIV epidemic. Uh, I think he's a fantastic fit. 
Absolutely. With Indianapolis being the largest city of Indiana, being among the largest HIV service organizations in this city, I'm sure it has a lot of weight on his shoulders. But you can tell that Alan really knows how to look ahead, especially not just for his organization, but for his community as a whole. I wanted to kind of touch upon the one-stop shop. Earlier in the beginning of the episode, we mentioned that a lot of other HIV service organizations, if they can't have all of the services down under one roof, they refer out and they collaborate. And I still believe that collaboration, whether your services are all under one roof or not, is the key to making this kind of network of services work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when Alan was talking about their expansion, the new satellite office that they have, that's that's really exciting. And that's a whole nother take on the one-stop shop, right? Yeah. Because under one roof does not mean the Damien Center's doing it all. It means that their clients can access all of these different services from these different organizations in one place. And that is another great take on this model. You know, how can you bring the needs of your clients, the solutions to their needs to a single place where you can meet them where they are? get them the care that they need so that they can walk away feeling like they've accomplished something so that they can walk away with fewer problems than they had when they walk in and a much higher chance of achieving positive clinical outcomes as a result. So I think that's a really, really great approach that um, even if you're not the one-stop shop, that doesn't mean that you can't be part of that one-stop shop. Absolutely. And again, I, I really think that this just opens the minds of a lot of people who who don't really understand that HIV care is so much more than your medication and your retention. In order to achieve viral, viral suppression, you as a person need to be cared for in every single aspect of your life. And so I commend the Damien Center for really taking that into account and looking at all of that, the big picture of the person living with HIV. Yeah, and it's really cool to see how they're using this digital solution kit that they've put together in order to serve their clients. And it kind of reminds me of our, our last guest, Leah, where she also uses the same tablets that the Damien Center uses. And, you know, the Damien Center, I believe, you know, they do provide mental health services as part of their service offering. But AIDS Ministries, they connected and partnered with Volunteers of America. And they're using telehealth to, you know, make mental health services available to their clients. And they're filling in the gaps of their service model with their partnerships and using the power of technology and the ease of that to meet those needs and do it in a way that's incredibly efficient for their clients. Really cut back on that waiting time, the, uh, the referral process and the connection and all of that. Just get people streamlined directly into the services that they need. And I know that we're seeing you know, throughout the U.S. and some of the, some of the organizations that we work with are, are trying similar models where they are placing tablets inside of rooms inside of their organizations where clients can go in and connect with partners elsewhere in the community or other service providers while they're there for their medical visits. They can, you know, have an appointment with somebody off-site while they are on-site. And I think that's a really cool adaptation of that model as well. I think that is a really good point there. Some organizations are being really imaginative with how they are going about, maybe if they can't exactly have a one-stop shop model, they can't have all of the services physically in-house they can still look towards technology to get all of those services in one house. And I, I think that's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's all we've got for you guys today. Yeah, uh, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of In a Positive Light. Join us again for the next episode. We're gonna be talking with a great friend of ours about how language accessibility is just as much of a vital part of the continuum of care. I'm Nathan Walsh. And I'm Richard Walsh. And we're signing off.
Thank you for listening to this episode of In a Positive Light. If you have any questions or feedback for our guests or hosts, visit poslight.org to contact us. That's P-O-Z-L-I-G-H-T dot org. You can also join our Facebook group, Positive Light Community, to share ideas and participate in conversations about ending the HIV epidemic. Have a great week and shine bright.